today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Cash and Carry Kitchens. At the heart of Irish homes for over 40 years. Cashandcarrykitchens.ie Email todaycb at rte.ie. I have the gathering here with me and we're going to get into that in just a moment. But we have news just reaching us on the wires that the jailed Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny has died. Now, around a month ago, the Russian opposition leader made his first public appearance in a a video call. He was moved to an Arctic prison uh, around that time. He complained of being poisoned, assaulted, deprived of proper medical care. He also said that he faced a new challenge, which was being forced to listen to music by a pro-Putin pop singer at five o'clock every morning. He was 47, a former lawyer who rose to prominence more than 10 years ago when he lampooned the president, Vladimir Putin's uh, elite. He voiced concerns of allegations about vast corruption. Now, he had been sentenced to stay in prison until he was 74 years old on charges that he said were trumped up in order to keep him out of politics. And we're just hearing in the last few minutes that Alexei Navalny has died. Now, let's move to the Friday gathering. I'm joined by Green Party TD for Limerick City and party spokesperson on transport, climate, action and the environment, Brian Ledden, Social Democrats TD for Dublin Northwest and party spokesperson for health, finance and public expenditure, Roisin Shortall, communications consultant and columnist, Sarah Carey and law lecturer uh, from the Southeast Technological University, Dr. Jennifer Kavanagh. Thank you all very much for coming in this morning. Now, I'm going to come to RTE uh, first because a lot of the head Headlines were dominated again about revelations about RTE. Um, this stemmed from the Oireachtas Media Committee appearance on Wednesday. And the biggest moment, Sarah, I'll start with you on this uh, because of your communications consultant <laughs> qualifications. But the revelation that the former CFO in RTE, Breda O'Keefe, we, we got confirmation that the exit package agreed for Breda O'Keefe was €450,000. What did you make of that? You know, it's the price of a house. It's a whole new life for people. And I know some people might be sick of listening to RTE, but for me anyway, that was one of those moments where you just go, this is crazy. And let's remember that Breed O'Keefe was the chief financial officer. She was on the executive board, which was supposed to approve all the exit packages. It didn't approve this one, which she must have known. Emer Cusack, who's the head of HR, was signing it off under the instruction, apparently, of D Forbes. So she knew that somebody else was being recruited into the same position. Like people are just looking at this incredulous that Mm -hmm. this is how a major organisation was run. And and by the way, I want to say I have huge sympathy for all the existing staff in RTE, including yourself, Claire. You know, freelance researchers, people not on good pay at all. You know, we're really sick of it. I would say, though, I think Kevin Backhurst got the tone right. And, you know, I do think there is a genuine sincerity there about trying to fix this and a genuine shock and horror about what was done before. Mm -hmm. So I am... But there are more questions now because there are other exit packages Packages and I see the Labour Party now has joined many others uh, in asking that the amounts, the full details around those exit packages be agreed. And I should say that McCann Fitzgerald, who did the formal investigation into Breda O'Keefe's exit package, said that she had done nothing wrong and any errors were the fault of RTE. Roisin Shortall. Well, what emerged during the week is certainly very, very undermining of RTE and must be sickening for, for the staff here. 
um, at a point when we thought things were going to, uh, at the point when we, we thought things were about to be tidied up and cleaned up um, we had this bombshell uh, and of course that's only one uh, th- there are big questions in relation to other people who got packages specifically I suppose Rory Coveney and um, it's very hard to understand the difference in approach by Kevin uh, Backhurst during the week where he disclosed the figure for Breed O'Keefe um, but refused to disclose the, the figure for, for uh, Rory Coveney On legal advice he said Well what is that legal advice? He's going back to get further legal advice but you know there shouldn't be any secrecy surrounding any of these packages um, this is public money in the main um, people who work in public sector organisations you know all details in relation to pay pensions and all of that should be on the public record um, it, we shouldn't have a situation where we're not hearing the detail of the spending of public money I mean at the time when Rory Coveney stepped down that, that was seen to be the honourable thing to do he was the person at the very centre of the catastrophe which was the uh, toy show the musical um, and now we're learning that he actually got a big golden handshake well, we don't we, know we don't know what it was we know that he got something well he got a golden handshake he, he walked away mm. um, from a situation left behind massive debt and he got a golden handshake we're entitled to know and everybody in RTE and the public is entitled to know what he got now you know there's all this talk about legal uh, advice and so on I would suggest that you know it's up to Rory Coveney to deal with this matter he can disclose that if he wishes. And I think that would be very helpful to clear the air in relation to the secrecy that was surrounding mm-hmm. that. And, I, you know, I, I put it to him that he, he should consider doing that. But we need, you know, much greater transparency and accountability in RTE. We haven't seen that. And of course, this is something that has been known for some time. The, the fact that there were issues about the culture in RTE, about the lack of accountability, uh, about governance. And that's been known for a number of years. And successive governments have ignored that, have failed to deal with it. And that includes the current government and the current minister who has been promising since she took office that she would address the issues in RTE, the funding issues, but also the culture and, and governance issues. And, and she, and she says that that is, is what she, she is doing. And that there, is the next step. She's been there now for years. Well, and, and it, there are two more reports to be published and, and we're told that those reports will be crucial and that was the criticism of Sinn Féin during the week when they made the move on the licence fee. A government said we need those two reports before we make any decisions. And there is a sense that there is a funding decision imminent, but the Irish Times made the point today, and Brian, you might come in on this, where is the plan from government? Where is Where are the options here? Because we're not really seeing any clear path. Yeah, just to say, uh, I agree with it. Uh, almost everything Roisin said. Um, uh, she's absolutely accurate and, and correct about uh, the need for transparency and secrecy, or, or no secrecy, of course, um, uh, when it comes to uh, public money and these contracts. Uh, but I do really disagree uh, on the last point. Uh, I think Minister Martin uh, has, she's the first minister re- to really grapple with the challenge uh, uh, that is there in in uh, RTE and funding of public service broadcasting. We're going to see, I think, in a, in a matter of weeks, uh, su- subject to uh, the legal checks and so on, we're going to see those r- reports coming back. And then we will, um, and this was confirmed actually in, in the, the doll yesterday by the Taunashta uh, during leaders' questions, 
we're going to see in, in the, uh, the next short while uh, this new uh, model for funding public service broadcasting mm-hmm. and it's not before time. Do you think there's an element, Roisin, then of playing politics here? Or what, what, are you, what are you alleging from the political perspective? I'm alleging the fact that successive ministers have ignored or um, not taken on their responsibility in relation to governance issues in RTE. Funding and governance are, are, you know, intertwined very closely. So, you know, what is the funding proposal for RTE? And then as one of the critical funders, uh, government has a responsibility to ensure that there is proper governance systems in place in the organisations now in the organisation. Now, clearly, that has not been the case. And over the last eight months or so, you know, we have heard story after story about how senior people and very well paid people in the organisation are circumventing standard governance rules and, you know, reaching secret sweetheart deals with various executives in the organisation at a time when large numbers of people in RTE are forced into a situation where they're bogus self-employed, where they're trying to regularise their employment situation. And at the same time, you have this carry on in relation to executives. It's, it's just not acceptable. And the minister needs to take charge of that situation rather than... But what you more know, can she do now? Well, you get the impression that she's sitting back and leaving it to the PAC and and the media committee well, to actually dig met, into she this. She met the director general yesterday. I, I think it was in the form of a, a phone call. She was on the news at one just prior to that talking about a meeting that she just had with the chair, Shuni Rahalik. Like, what more do you want her to do? I think she needs to have a much more hands-on approach to ensuring proper standards of governance in the organisation. I mean, is she asking questions? You say yesterday, you know, she had a telephone call with Kevin Backhurst. I mean, this is at a point when we have seen more and more kind of inappropriate, unacceptable practice within RTE. And the thing should have been grabbed a hold of much earlier. I want to ask you about these calls for Breda O'Keefe to hand back the money. What is the legal position on that? Because the argument is made there is a a moral uh, call for her to, to give that money back. There can be moral calls for many, many different things, but it's not legal. It's well established that if somebody gets a package like that, something comes out later on where there's a problem, you don't get the money back. Any law student who has done contract law will know of Bell against Lever Brothers, where Lever Lever Brothers couldn't get their money back because the person who'd been given the payout, it later transpired that there was irregularities. And if you were to open the door for legally someone to be forced to give money back down the road... Anyone could be challenged on anything. Mm -hmm. And Catherine Martin had to grapple with this issue because of the disaster that was coming out. And there are two more reports to come out. If we want full transparency, those reports have to come out for everyone to know what the situation is. So they do have to hold back on looking at a new funding model. But the committees do have to be very careful that it is not turning into a quasi-Angela Cairns situation where people are being put under significant pressure, where committees are going beyond their powers. Nobody wants the Supreme Court to be engaged in what's going on with committees. I think probably the Oireachtas legal team would be getting completely triggered, thinking that they might be going down this path again. Mm -hmm. So, yes, there needs to be transparency, 
But at the end of the day, there's company law, there's the, the Office of Corporate Enforcement, there are all these other bodies that do have legal powers where, yes, the Oireachtas committees can ask the questions, but it shouldn't be political theatre either because we are dealing with people at the end of the day and if they have done issues that are problematic, it should go to those other bodies that are there. The problem for RTE, Sarah, now Mm. is trying to have this conversation about future funding when you're looking at exit packages and demanding transparency. That's a very difficult conversation to have with members of the public. And I even noticed it online when the journal put up uh, a question, a a poll question, how should RTE be funded into Mm. the future? I went through a good few of the thousand or so comments. They were all negative. Timmy Dooley made a great contribution, I thought, um, uh, to the meeting. And by the way, I want to say Neve Smith, I think, is doing a good job of chairing it. There are problems with withdrawal committees and, you know, bullying and abuse of witnesses, but I think she's doing a good job. Timmy Dooley's point was... I think it should be done on the basis of the property tax. There's a household charge, the revenue collects it, and that's an independent ring-fenced fund. If you bring in direct funding, while the government has to, you know, have some kind of oversight and governance, as Roisin said, you're also then in the very difficult position where that's a threat that they can hang over RTE. So, for example, as he pointed out, Mary Lou MacDonald is suing RTE. How can you have a situation where if she's the next TSOC, she also has the power to decide how much money RTE gets? So I would be very strongly in favour of an independent fund, but let the revenue at it. They've done a super job in property tax and that's the simplest way. Brian, do you want to come back in there on this before we move on? Yeah, there's merit there in what uh, Sarah is saying we'll, we'll, we'll see how this transpires in the, in the next few months I just want to say and Roisin will, will know as much as I do as uh, Roisin's a former chair of an Oireachtas Committee and I, I chair the Climate Committee currently uh, the reason we know this information is because of the work uh, of those committees and I don't think we should dismiss uh, the committees uh, as theatre at all I don't, I'm not saying that you were but these are fundamentally important in, in our system and they have unearthed such infor- important information, uh, particularly with regard to RTE in the last year. And I would just have to give credit to them. And I think there is, uh, Jennifer is absolutely correct, and Roshan will know this as a former chair of a committee as well, we have to be so careful uh, that we don't overstep the mark. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. that comp- compatibility question, uh, the, the line was crossed a number of years ago and uh, that had... Uh, that was absolutely wrong, shouldn't have happened and we don't want to go into that territory again. Claire, could I just say there's one important um, thing that needs to happen in respect of engagement with committees and that, I mean, this issue was started looking at, you know, the first committee to look at this was the Public Accounts Committee. My colleague on that, Catherine Murphy, the vice chair of it, has been saying for a long time what needs to happen is that RTE needs to be brought back in under the remit of the CNAG, the Controller and Auditor General, so that the, the CNAG audits RTE. That stopped in the mid-90s for some unknown reason. And that needs to happen. If that was happening, if there was the CNAG eyes over all of the accounts in RTE and the practices, mm-hmm. we wouldn't find ourselves yeah. in the well, situation. Okay, well, that's that's Brian Stanley made issue. that point this morning. It's yep. more to do with the independence of RTE because you had the RTE authority. There was various issues with that. So there is the new media commission. Maybe there is a role for that. But I would be very concerned about direct state funding because the organs of public opinion, namely the media named to the constitution, have such an important role that is there. I, I and, totally agree with yeah, that. And I'm, other, I'm not in but like for example, fully. other bodies that have that sort of constitutional remit, like the courts, we had to have a referendum to take 
tax money off of them. And that shows the importance of having that independence mm-hmm. for something like public broadcasting yeah. and needs to be considered. Okay. Sarah, you, you, you mentioned Mary Lou. I totally agree. Sarah mentioned something like Mary Lou McDonald taking a case against RT. And it's important to say that anyone can take a case against RTE. That oh, is yeah. within her right to defend her good a- name if that's what she decides a- to absolutely. do. Absolutely, but if she also is given the power to sign off on the funding, you can see why there might be a little bit of a There may not there. be and anyone is entitled to take a case against okay. uh, RTE or any media organisation. We move on to the HSE's new service plan because Bernard Gloucester, the CEO of the HSE, was out uh, talking about this and they're promising fewer agency staff but shorter waiting lists and better uh, use of resources. Now, I don't know how this can be credible or deliverable given the pressures that are on the HSC, Roisin. I know you've been going through the service plan. What do you think of it? So, I mean, I agree with that approach in relation to agency staff. We've had far too many agency staff in in the HSE and it's very expensive. Yeah, but we need them. Well, well, we should be employing people rather than, you know, leaving posts vacant and bringing in expensive agency staff. So that is a, a valid objective. My problem with with the service plan is that there isn't enough capacity being funded in mm-hmm. it. Uh, we have a growing population. We have an ageing population and that puts huge additional pressures on the health service. It is absolutely inevitable that at a certain point during the year there will be need a uh, need for a supplementary estimate, as is the case every single year. <coughs> Uh, in relation to health funding. Now, there were serious mistakes made at the time of the budget um, and I think there's a growing acceptance of that uh, on the part of government. Um, uh, Deeper, the the funding uh, department did not take into consideration the full implications of the growing population and the the ageing population Mm -hmm. and the costs involved in that. It's not just me saying that. The Fiscal Advisory Council was very, very critical of of deeper in relation (coughs) to to health funding. Uh, And that will have to be corrected at a certain point during the year. We know there was a €2 billion black hole in the budget last year there was a need for, for, for a supplementary budget to bail out the HSE uh, to provide that additional funding. And that will happen again this year. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have to bear in mind, of course, that we are in the midst of a reform programme, major reform programme under Sláinte Care that's, you know, had had started to take, take off and to have momentum. Uh, my fear is that that programme, the, the reform, will, might slow down this year because of the underfunding. But we must plough ahead with that kind of reform, the restructuring of the HSE and moving from the current very hospital centric model that we have at the moment, the yeah. most expensive model to a community based model. Yeah, which and is what's, what's happening, care what's happening under Sanja Care at the moment is going to achieve okay. that. And there are serious plans this year to move in the right direction. Right. But the fear is that because of the budget constraints, Sarah, that the turn on the road for Sanja Care might be missed in all of this. I don't think so because I see an awful lot of progress in that. And actually, just want to say one personal note. Um, me and other members of my family have had encounters, hospital-based care um, over the last year or two and we have always gotten fantastic care in the public uh, sector and I think it's really important to say that because sometimes people are afraid to go in A&E when they need treatment but you actually should go to A&E if you need it. So I just want to say that we are chipping away at some of the reforms. So for example, two big ones are the consultant contract. Like That's really, really important and that's a game changer um, and 1,800 of the consultants have signed up to that and 
And that means two important things. There are many, but one is it's taking private care out of public hospitals. And the second one is it's rostering the consultants at weekends so you don't have those people in over the weekend and can't get discharged on Monday. Another one is the enhanced community care. And you have all these chronic management disease programs taking place in the community. I went down to Ballancolic last year to a GP's practice to see how it actually worked. And they are taking loads of patients, particularly those older patients who normally would have gone to outpatient clinics in the hospitals and now they're being seen in the community. So I know it can see that this staggering amount of money um, is going into the system all the time and going nowhere. But I think they are managing to bit by bit chip away at those reforms. And one thing that concerns me, and I don't think they come under enough pressure, are the trade unions, are they really cooperating with changes of work practice? So I remember Anne O'Connor when she was Chief Operations Officer during COVID saying the HSE was able to change practices in days, in absolute days, because there was this sense of a national crisis and people getting behind it and doing things they never did before. And now we're back to normal practice and it's back to the grind of trying to persuade people to change how they do things. Yeah, I know. So I'm, I'd I'm, say I'm, don't I'm, lose I, heart. You know, as you say that, I'm thinking about <laughs> yeah. a nurse or a doctor working in the emergency department in the University Hospital in Limerick today, you know, and, and you're asking yeah, them to I, change their practice. I, I can't imagine that there is anybody there who isn't working flat out. OK, well, here's one example. I know that in some outpatient clinics pre-COVID, maybe they would have scheduled something like 40 people to come into the clinic in the morning. But then social distancing came in and they reduced it to 30. And in some of those clinics, they haven't gone back up to 40. You know, so there are still things that can be done. But I think it is important to focus on what is being done to show people that it does actually work. Because if you just crush the morale of everybody involved, then they say, what's the point? Mm -hmm. But there is progress. And I think it's important to acknowledge those. So it gives people encouragement for what can be done. All right. Quick word on this. If you want, Jennifer and Brian, because I want to move on to retrofitting. The one thing I'm going to say is GPs. If you want to have community care, we don't have enough GPs. It takes four years for a GP to be trained, even though they already have a medical degree and they've already been in hospital. You can do it in three years in Northern Ireland. So these are things that's low-hanging fruit that can be changed quite quickly. And I, I personally don't think that when they started closing a lot of hospitals in the early 80s, they never actually built in the fact that we're going to have an older okay. and ageing population. And that is one of the major issues I see because older people, their GPs have retired, can't get into a new practice. So they have no choice but to go to an A&E mm-hmm. if they have a chest infection. Okay. That needs to be Brian, fixed. do you mind if we move on to retrofitting? I really want to talk to you about this because we've covered it extensively this week and it's just been fascinating to see the messages that come in. I mean, what we have established is in order to involve yourself in the retrofitting process as a homeowner, you need to have loads of money in the bank. No, that's not true at all. But it is because you've got to front it up. You've got to have and you've got to be uh, far enough up the list on a one stop shop to be able to get the service in the first place. No, but there's the Warmer Home Scheme, which is a a fully funded uh, retrofit um, funded by the carbon tax. You know the waiting list for that? Uh, I do. It's about two years. Uh, and after two ah, years, Brian, when, when the work is done, when the work is done, people uh, who uh, have availed of it uh, are going to live in. Uh, we're talking uh, about uh, very sorry, sorry, old and, and vulnerable yeah. people who are dependent Indeed. on that scheme. 
the, the Warmer Home Scheme, and it's really important that this radio show has a very large listenership, and it's important that uh, those listeners hear uh, that they they qualify th- that many of them do qualify for the Warmer Home Scheme, which is a fully funded retrofit. This is to, wait two to years the tune for of tens of thousands of euros. You see what we and found I'll out. Just this say, is Claire, really no, good I think news it's really, for you. It's really important. No, to this say is it. really a good news this for is, you. It, there is huge demand for this. People really want to get it done, but they need absolutely. more help. There, there's huge demand, and if you are in fuel allowance, if you're on a job seekers allowance for more than six months, and you have a child that's under six, uh, domiciliary care allowance, carers allowance, disability allowance with a child under seven. Uh, the working family payment, the one parent family allowance, you can qualify for a fully funded retrofit. And if it's like it, the reason it takes two years is because the demand is so great mm-hmm. and, and that's a good thing. So Why isn't it funded properly then? It's fully funded. To meet the need. No, fu- to meet well, the need. It is fully there. funded. People shouldn't have to wait It's fully funded years. by the, the carbon tax and what's happened in the last few years is, is actually a very positive story. We've gone from, I think it's around, uh, there's a tenfold increase in retrofits in just a few years. A whole industry has been developed uh, by this government and it's ramping up. We are pushing for 500,000 homes to be retrofitted to B2 standard yeah, maybe, by but, 2030. But very vulnerable and people are, are being left waiting two years to get to bring their home up to a proper standard. You uh, have uh, to like it's acknowledge, not adequately funded. You have to acknowledge the incredible progress that has been made uh, and we are ahead of target. Is two years of waiting list acceptable, Brian? Two years for an incredible, this is a full retrofit of the home. This is a huge amount of work. It, it's like, we shouldn't you know, take this lightly at all. It's after the, the two years and, and obviously the, the industry needs to be built up uh, such that there's greater capacity in the system and we can get waiting times down. Mm. But we, we shouldn't have a hang up on the fact that it takes two years. What's happening here is the biggest infrastructural project in the history of the state. So the two Five, years isn't a problem? I think we should do everything we can. There, we're, we are at full employment in this mm. country. What there are the, huge what, resource what about constraints. For, for other people who want to do a retrofit? They're looking at renovating their home and they have to pony up that money up front. That's a very difficult position so for people for to be in. So for the vast numbers of people that that um, um, y- you know that are looking to do this, and the ones that don't qualify, and there's there's so many people that do qualify for the warmer home scheme, as I've pointed out. For the ones that don't qualify for it, uh, there are there's two ways of going about it. And I think you've dealt with this on the show during the week. Uh, there's the the single measures grants for those that don't have the capital to do the full deep retrofits, and for those who do have the capital to do the full deep retrofit, they can go through the one stop shop process, and that's a, a very but you still uh, have to pay upfront yourself. Yeah. And it's it's it is targeted. That's difficult. It, hold yeah. on, it's targeted at the people who do have the capital. So we're leveraging private. What about what people about who don't? And for the people who don't, in a matter of weeks, and actually, I was um, Minister Pascal Donoghue who was into the Joint Rocks Committee on Environment and Climate Action, which I chair, uh, and he confirmed that in a matter of weeks we're going to have the low cost loans. So those people who currently don't have the capital outlay uh, to do the other fifty percent that the one stop shop loan isn't they can providing, the money. they would. Anyone else have experience here of this or or, or have a a few Only only a tiny little microcosm of it. We have loads of insulation in our attic, but it's all thrown around the place. And I got a guy to come round to see about, you know, did it need more insulation or did we just need to refit what was already up there? Piles of it in one place, nothing in another place. So we came round, looked in the attic, spent 30 seconds and came back down and said, yeah, 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 I'll do that for you. Uh, Four and a half grand or something like that. And I said, well, that seems like a lot when you just want to fix what is already there. And he said, yeah, but she'll get the grant, won't she? And I'm wondering, is there a problem where if everything has a subsidy, are those subsidies then been built into the cost? So famously in New Zealand, they removed 
all subsidies from agriculture with the result that the cost of all inputs went down. So subsidies are great, but are they acting as an inflationary um, influence on the cost? The other one is, I suspect that two-year wait has more to do with the shortage of workers. That it's not that there's a shortage of money, but who's there to do it? So Simon Harris, I think, has been absolutely brilliant in trying to get into schools, into career guidance teachers and saying to people, you don't just have to go to college, push people into the construction industry. And he found where even parents were discouraging their children from going into construction because they felt it was a bad career to be in. Jennifer, 30 seconds on this. More incentives needed, do you think, or are there enough? Well, one of the issues that's coming up is older people living in homes that are cold. Mm. And if you're going to have an interest-free loan, they're not even going to think they're going to be around to actually pay off the loan. So they will go for the warmer home scheme rather than... But with older people, if you've ever dealt with them, even just trying to get doors changed in a house, they do not want people in. They do not want the upheaval. And if you're going to be going for a full deep retrofit, where are you going to rent the house for six months to actually move okay. out and get the job done? The, 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 no the way the system has been working, the way the system has been working is that the better off it. you are, the more support you get from the state, and okay. that shouldn't be the, the way. Well, this isn't and, true. And you know, Eamon Ryan first uh, promised low interest loans three years ago. Well, they're coming and now. We hear, oh, and we, we need we've been told, it, right, and, the and they needed to be they needed to be approved by Europe, and they are coming in the next few weeks. Okay, I have to leave it there. I'm out of time. Brian Ledden, Roisin Shortall, Sarah Carey and Dr. Jennifer Cavanagh. Thank you all for coming in. We'll take a break. Text 51551 today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1.